1: Our guest today is a journalist, political commentator, and author who has written for The Washington Post since her final year at Harvard Law School. Among other beats, Ruth Marcus has covered campaign finance, the Justice Department, the Supreme Court, and the White House. And for 15 years, she has served on The Post's editorial board. Her new book, Supreme Ambition, Brett Kavanaugh and the Conservative Takeover, debuted last week. Ruth Marcus, welcome to Words Matter. Thanks so much for having me. So we want to start off before we actually get to Kavanaugh. The book timing is perfect because you talk about this contentious confirmation that happened in the Senate about a year ago. But now there is an equally contentious debate going on in the House over the impeachment of President Trump that's happening as we speak down the road. So before we get to Kavanaugh, give us your thoughts on the impeachment process and where you think that's going. Sure. Well, actually, it feels
2: very familiar. And I think there are some parallels. Some Republicans themselves have called impeachment Kavanaugh 2.0. And I think one thing that's going on is that With both Justice Kavanaugh's confirmation and with this current impeachment proceeding, we're hearing a lot of complaints from Republicans about bad motives. In Kavanaugh, it was Democrats were out to get Kavanaugh with whatever ammunition they could find. And they finally came up with Christine Blasey Ford. And with President Trump, it's Democrats have been out to try to impeach the president since before he was sworn in. And so now having failed with what the president famously calls the Russia hoax, um, they are now turning their attention to Ukraine. And in both cases, I think motive is irrelevant if the facts justify a, a different conclusion. Yes, Democrats wanted to defeat Brett Kavanaugh, the question is whether the allegations that came forward, and yes, they were at the last minute from Christine Blasey Ford, are significant enough to have affected his confirmation. And similarly, with impeachment, the question isn't whether Democrats have had it in for President Trump and some of them have wanted to impeach him from the start. It's how serious are these allegations? And in both situations, there's just this reflexive tribalism, and particularly on the part of Republicans. And either an inability or an unwillingness to get to the fundamental facts as opposed to dealing with their sense of being aggrieved and put upon. You asked um, where I see things going with impeachment. Again, I think that may be another situation of Kavanaugh 2.0. I think it was almost baked in from the start that um, Judge Kavanaugh now Justice Kavanaugh would get enough votes to get him across the finish line to becoming Justice Kavanaugh. This was always about a hunt for 50 votes. It wasn't about a hunt for the truth or anything else. And in this situation, I think we pretty much know the end game. There is a little bit of mystery about how broad the articles of impeachment might be. There is zero mystery about whether they're are enough votes to impeach the president in the House and probably no mystery about whether there will be any Republican votes in favor of impeaching him. There will not be. And even more obvious, I think, unless something amazing happens and God knows enough amazing things have happened around here, that it's extremely unlikely that there will be the two thirds votes necessary to convict him in the Senate and probably extremely unlikely that there will be any Republican votes to convict him in the Senate.
0: So, Ruth, one of the things that struck me about Kavanaugh is after two years of Republicans being divided among Trumpers and never Trumpers, I was sort of shocked back into the reality of, boy, Republicans can speak as one voice. And the traditional Republicans came together with the the newer populist wing. I think you've described a situation where that is happening again around impeachment. Can you look back over time, over 20 years ago, and compare the tribalism of 1998 with what we see now?
2: Sure. In fact, I might even go back earlier than impeachment, back to the first major judicial battle of the modern nominations war, which was the hearing into Judge Bork, who was named to the Supreme Court by President Reagan, and the reason that he's not Justice Bork has to do with... um, Now, I wouldn't say an absence of tribalism, but a lesser tribalism. Back in those days, six Republicans voted against Judge Bork's confirmation. Two Democrats went the other way and voted to confirm him. He was rejected by the Senate and actually yielded us Justice Kennedy, who yielded us Brett Kavanaugh. So... The whole circle comes around. The notion today that some number like six would break ranks, 11 Democrats, by the way, voted to confirm Justice Clarence Thomas several years later. That is unimaginable today. It certainly was true, Joe, back in 1998 when we were talking about impeachment. We did not think of it as a kinder, gentler era. We did not think of it as an age of good feeling where Republicans and Democrats were both willing to set aside partisanship. And look seriously at the facts of the case against President Clinton and then have a debate about whether this did or did not rise to the level of impeachable offense. What you thought about the president really depended in significant part on where you sat and which party you're in. The thing that's really remarkable is I think 15 Republican members of the Senate today took part in the Clinton impeachment Fourteen of them, all but Senator Susan Collins of Maine, were willing either to impeach President Clinton in the House or convict him and remove him from office in the Senate. And one of the things that I think is remarkable about this moment is Reasonable minds can differ about what should have happened with President Clinton, but I think it is a really hard argument to make that what President Clinton was so bad that he needed to be impeached and removed from office, but what President Trump did is of no moment and we should go on and have our election. That's just a measure of the even greater degree of hypocrisy we're experiencing and tribalism that we're experiencing today than we experienced in 1998.
0: Uh, I agree. I'm, I'm really interested because you kind of span a lot of different areas of expertise, how Capitol Hill works, how the Supreme Court works. Justice Rehnquist in 1998 really didn't play a role. And you can disagree with that if you think it's wrong. But it feels like Chief Justice Roberts might have a more significant role in this trial. Do you think there's anything to that
2: I think not if he can help it. I think the main difference between Chief Justice Rehnquist back then and Chief Justice Roberts now is that Chief Justice Roberts is not apt to come out with stripes on his sleeve that decorated uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist back in the day. His role, you remember it exactly correctly, it was kind of ministerial and very formal, and he did not get involved in the weeds of decision-making about how the procedures should go. And- I know Chief Justice Robert some, and I think the last thing on earth he wants is to get himself mired in yet another sticky partisan situation. He's got enough on his hands trying to um, maintain and to some extent salvage the reputation of the Supreme Court without getting stuck in politics with the impeachment. I think he would just like to wrap his gavel a couple times and be as little noticed as possible. And I think in reality, the notion that the chief justice would come in and make rulings on the merits and he will be uh, saying, marshal, order John Bolton to be brought in handcuffs to the Senate chamber so we can hear him testify, is both really unlikely and in some ways irrelevant because in the end the chief justice's rulings, whatever he decides, are subject to, that. mean, they, it might be a little hard for Republicans to overrule him, but they are subject to um, overruling by a majority of the chamber. So he really is going to play, I think, largely the same symbolic role that the chief justice played in the Clinton impeachment.
0: So one last one before, and this will transition, I think, nicely into talking about the book, but the deal for loyalty For Republicans and for absolute loyalty to President Trump, it feels like in large part because of their ability to get so many justices through and to remake the federal judiciary. Does that sound right to you?
2: 100% absolutely right. Uh, I don't think President Trump would be President Trump today. Had Justice Scalia not suddenly died in February 2016 and opened up a vacancy on the Supreme Court, President Trump would not be President Trump today had the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell not done the um, audacious and I would say outrageous thing of declaring within uh, an hour of hearing about Justice Scalia's death, that he was going to hold that seat open. And this is February 2016, months and months before the election, that he was going to hold that seat open. And President Trump would not be President Trump today if he had not done the amazing thing of producing not just a shortlist, but a public shortlist so that the social conservative voters, the evangelical voters who were understandably and um, perhaps correctly skeptical of what kind of president President Trump would be would be assured about the one thing that is most important to them that was guaranteed to get them to the polls, which was they could not lose the Supreme Court. This was their chance. This is the subject on which President Trump has most greatly delivered for his base and his party. He has transformed the federal judiciary. He has stocked it with more younger and more conservative judges than any president before, not just at the Supreme Court, long after we're done with impeachment long after we're done with the election, that is going to be Donald Trump's legacy. It's not just Donald Trump's legacy. It's also Mitch McConnell's legacy. And that is the reason that he's elected. And that is the reason that conservatives rallied behind Brett Kavanaugh when Brett Kavanaugh got into trouble. And it's the reason
1: that conservatives have stuck so long and so closely with this president. So let's talk about that moment in February 2016 and the book, because you opened the story of Kavanaugh's nomination and confirmation with February 2016, the sudden death of Justice Scalia, very unexpected. The Trump campaign approached Leonard Leo and the Federalist Society, and they created the list, what we all know now as uh, this list. And talk a little bit about that and who was on the list and perhaps more importantly, who wasn't on the list? Sure. Justice Scalia dies in February
2: 2016. In March of 2016, Donald Trump has a very fateful meeting at the Jones Day Law Firm here in Washington, And this meeting is with a bunch of conservatives, but one of them is Leonard Leo, the executive vice president of the Federalist Society. And the point of this meeting, as um, Newt Gingrich told me for the book, the former House speaker, is about Donald Trump's conservative problem. He has a conservative problem. What is there to be done about the conservative problem? The answer is judges. We're going to reassure them about judges. And the way we're going to reassure them about judges is to produce this list. And Leonard Leo is asked by Don McGahn, who later became the president's White House counsel, to come with a list. After this meeting, he privately gives his list to then-candidate Trump, And there are uh, about six names on it. One name is not on that list who is a surprise when we discover it later. That name is Brett Kavanaugh. Why is Brett Kavanaugh not on that list? Because Leonard Leo has some qualms about whether Brett Kavanaugh would be conservative enough. Donald Trump wants uh, additional names on the list. They take a while. They produce a list in May of 2016. It has 20 names on it. Again, Brett Kavanaugh's name is not on that list. Again, in um, the fall of 2016, another 11 names are produced, no Brett Kavanaugh. This kind of doesn't seem like a big deal because the point of this list is not to figure out who Donald Trump's going to put on the Supreme Court. It is to reassure conservatives. And actually, um, Mitch McConnell, who's been pushing the president to put this list out, doesn't actually really believe it's ever going to be used because he doesn't think that Trump is going to be elected. He thinks it's going to be valuable in helping his senators get elected and him to retain his Senate majority because it's going to motivate his voters. But President Trump is elected. Brett Kavanaugh has a problem. He would be a logical choice for any Republican president. But Donald Trump has said to his voters in order to get himself elected, which he amazingly is, I am only going to choose from this list and from this list alone. And by the way, it was Ted Cruz who insisted that Trump really harden his language as a price of Cruz's endorsement and say he'd only choose from that list. So flash forward to the spring of 2017, Justice Gorsuch, president's first choice, has been confirmed. He's at his uh, ceremonial swearing in. In the White House Rose Garden, and Justice Kennedy, for whom Justice Gorsuch clerked, has asked for a few minutes with the president. He has a point. The president he mentions that the president has a list, and there's somebody missing from that list who he thinks the president should consider. That somebody is Brett Kavanaugh. And guess what? Lo and behold, a few months later, at the annual convention of the Federalist Society, it, it is announced. Brett Kavanaugh is on the president's list. He has revised and extended his list. Um, and that sets the stage to really woo Justice Kennedy. The So many things are being done by the Trump administration in order to get Justice Kennedy comfortable with the notion of retiring. The main one was putting his favorite clerk on the president's shortlist. And when he retired the next summer, um, lo and behold, We have Justice Kavanaugh.
1: Can you talk about, for our listeners that aren't steeped in in the history of nominations and in the Supreme Court, how remarkable it is that Justice Kennedy even had that conversation and all of the things that happened after that conversation that led to his eventual retirement and replacement by his former clerk.
2: I think it was pretty remarkable that he had that conversation. In the book, I describe it as a remarkable insertion by a sitting justice into um, the president's selection process. But there were a lot of remarkable insertions here. Justice Kavanaugh has an impressive ability to create and secure really influential and powerful mentors. So it wasn't just Justice Kennedy who went to bat for Justice Kavanaugh. Ironically, the biggest problem that Justice Kavanaugh had in getting on the president's list was that he worked for a previous president. He had worked for President George W. Bush in the Bush White House. He had been named to the bench by President George W. Bush, but he wasn't just any regular Bush guy. He had married the president's secretary, um, who was kind of a um, practically a, a third daughter to the Bushes. And so President Trump was really resistant to the idea of Kavanaugh because he just thought of him as a Bush guy. And that was the worst thing you could possibly be. But when he saw that he was a way to Justice Kennedy's heart, that was an attraction. And then While President Bush was a liability for Justice Kavanaugh before he was nominated, he became Justice Kavanaugh's greatest defender, made critical phone calls to wavering senators throughout the process, including one moment during that crazy scene um, that we didn't see on live TV, but the day after the Blasey Ford and Kavanaugh hearings as the Senate Judiciary Committee is getting ready, we think, to approve the Kavanaugh nomination. And then there's this backroom secrecy things going on. Maybe Jeff Flake wants to have an FBI investigation, and that might slow things down. Well, one thing that happens that day is President George W. Bush is calling Jeff Flake because he knows there's something going on. He's been alerted, Jeff Flake, I report is too busy to take the president's phone call because he's in the middle of trying to figure out whether he can agree to this FBI investigation and at least have some semblance of look into what happened.
0: Ruth, did you find in, you know, in your research any historical precedent for a justice to have such a role in picking his successor and for a president to have such an active role in trying to convince a justice to retire?
2: I did not. But I also think that there have been lots of what would now in kind of modern times look like unseemly sets of relations between presidents and justices in the past. You know, think about the relationship between Justice Fortas and President Johnson. So I think probably anything that was going on with President Trump and Justice Kennedy, somewhat pales in comparison to that. But I'll just tell one more story that's in the book. It's the week after the president is inaugurated, and it's this fancy dinner here in Washington called the Alfalfa Dinner. And Justice Kennedy's son, Gregory Kennedy, not the one who worked at Deutsche Bank, but um, also in the uh, investment business, goes up to Kellyanne Conway, the president's counselor, at the Alfalfa Dinner, and he says to her, He denies this in the book, by the way, but it's true. I have multiple firsthand sources on this. But Gregory Kennedy goes to Kellyanne Conway and he says, no one was happier about the election results than my father. And Kellyanne Conway says, that's good to hear because that happiness matters. And she promptly went back and reported that to the president and others at the White House. And that was just the start of the back-channel signals and conversations um, that were going on between um, Leonard Leo, Don McGahn, Justice Kennedy, Justice Kennedy's emissaries that led up to Justice Gorsuch's selection, which was very much designed to woo Justice Kennedy and eventually um, Judge Kavanaugh's nomination.
0: So switching gears here a little bit, there is a lot of still confusion about how Dr. Ford came to be in the middle of this story. Uh, so you talk about this in the book. Uh, talk a little bit about how she got to Washington and what her impact was.
2: So I spent many hours with her and I'm um, absolutely convinced that she may be the most, and I mean this in a kind way, the most naive person ever to have grown up inside the Beltway. I, th- I think her house might have been technically a little bit outside the Beltway. But she grew up in Washington, but she retained this naive and kind of somewhat comforting, I guess, belief that if she just quietly and privately told her story to senators or to the White House or to somebody that she could do it in time, she was had been hoping to get it done before Brett Kavanaugh was nominated, or if she privately went to Senator Grassley and Senator Feinstein, that surely they would realize there was a problem here. And it could all happen without her coming forward at all. This is a woman who so shuns the limelight that she doesn't even like teaching her statistics classes until she gets to know her students well enough. And so that that tremulous voice and that statement that she had that she was terrified to be before the Senate Judiciary Committee could not be more true. But she just was convinced, as she said, that it was her civic duty to come forward, though she made a decision at the end of August in 2018, that she was not going to come forward because she didn't think it was going to make a difference. And she was advised um, by people who had gone through previous um, nominations, battles, including the Anita Hill-Clarence Thomas hearings, that it would wreak too much havoc on her life. And in fact, it has. But then as Everything does in Washington, and certainly everything up at this potentially explosive does. Within days after her decision finally not to come forward, the story began to leak. If you've been around Washington for long enough, and if you certainly if you had watched the Anita Hill Clarence Thomas hearings and and that episode, you would have known that given the number of people in the chatty confines of Palo Alto, who knew Christine Blasey Ford's story, that it was almost
1: inevitable that that would come out. And so it did. And a lot of folks were critical of Senator Dianne Feinstein's handling of the letter and the leaks and how all of it happened and and came about. Do you have a view on that? What I write in the book is that Democrats had a bad hand that they proceeded to play badly.
2: And one of the people who played the hand badly was Senator Dianne Feinstein, who's the ranking member of the Judiciary Committee. To her credit, Senator Feinstein was in a very difficult position. She had this woman who very much did not want to come forward. Uh, Not forcing people to come forward against their will is a good thing and not a bad thing. And she also and her staff believed and had reason to believe over the summer that Christine Blasey Ford would eventually decide to come forward of her own volition. So giving Senator Feinstein credit for being in an exquisitely difficult position. That said, I think she handled it in a bad way to have information that powerful and that explosive, especially knowing how that situation and the last minute nature of those allegations had backfired against Democrats when it came to Clarence Thomas and Anita Hill this is actually how one of the ways that Diane Feinstein got elected was in the aftermath of the nineteen ninety two election following um the Hill Thomas hearings uh, for her to make that decision on her own without Either deciding to share it with Senator Grassley, which would have inevitably opened, I think, certainly Senator Feinstein believed that made Blasey Ford's information come out, would have exposed her, uh, the knowledge of her existence to the White House. What I would say, and where I think she really went wrong with the initial handling of that, was to take it on herself to make that decision on her own, not to share the information with any of the top leadership, Democratic leadership in the Senate. And so I described the scene as the um, Ford story is breaking in a room right off the Senate of her Judiciary Committee colleagues hearing about this for the first time as it's breaking in the press and pretty much wanting to um, tear Senator Feinstein limb
1: from limb. They're so angry about it. You mentioned the Hill-Thomas hearings, and you said earlier in the interview, Supreme Court nominations and confirmations have become more contentious than they used to be, and part of that was sparked with the nomination of Judge Bork. But I also want to talk about the nomination of Clarence Thomas uh, by George H.W. Bush and those confirmation hearings. Explain the parallels and the differences between the Kavanaugh confirmation and the Thomas confirmation.
2: Well, the parallels are that In the very closing days of a very contentious confirmation, allegations of sexual impropriety in the case of Justice Thomas, it was allegations that pretty much rose to the level of sexual harassment uh, against a former employee came up. Uh, We all remember what the allegations were against Justice Kavanaugh, and there was fury that this came out at the last minute. I remember, like it was yesterday, being at the Thomas hearings, and we thought, That there was a place where he could come out and say, I'm so sorry if anything I did was misinterpreted. I completely apologize. He absolutely 100% completely and vociferously denied that he engaged in any misconduct toward Nita Hill. And same for Justice Kavanaugh. One could have imagined a world in which he said, I acted like a jerk when I was in high school. I'm so sorry. I don't remember this. I don't think it happened, but if anything like that happened, I just feel terrible about it. I'm a better man now. That is not what happened. There were a couple really big differences. Um one difference was that Justice Thomas very much put his anger in the context of what he called a high tech lynching. And there was a lot of concern he's an African American. There were no African Americans on the Judiciary Committee at the time, and they were very reluctant to um that scared them, actually. The second big difference is that there were no women on the Judiciary Committee at the time, of the, neither on the Republican side nor on the Democratic side. Now there were four women senators among the Democrats on the committee. And honestly, as much as people may think that Christine Blasey Ford was not well treated in this process, it was a way different process than what Anita Hill went through. And at least these guys realized that like a whole bunch of the male Republican senators questioning this terrified woman was not going to stand. And so they went out and found that, quote unquote, female assistant. The third difference is that, um, interesting, there was the possibility, though it was given up very early on in the process, of a filibuster for Clarence Thomas. The filibuster did not exist by the time the Senate was getting ready to vote on Uh, Justice Kavanaugh. So really, they needed 50 votes. That was always their goal. They got one extra. And it was the willingness to just push that process along and do what it took to get him over the finish line. And of course, the final um, similarity between those two events is that they're both sitting on the Supreme Court today.
0: So, Ruth, I want to channel your time covering the Justice Department because I think it's relevant to Ah. both Kavanaugh and what's going on with Trump. Talk about the position the FBI was put in when there were Democrats saying you've got to do a real investigation and there were real limits put on what they could look at. What impact did that have on the hearing and then more broadly on what a lot of people, myself included, think are an attack on that institution by President Trump and some of his people?
2: So back in the day, the FBI actually did do an investigation uh, that was helpful and produced important information, and it was really pretty quick. They interviewed, I believe, 22 people um, in the Clarence Thomas and Nita Hill hearings. In this situation, and the driving force here is really Don McGahn, the White House counsel. Actually, I report that Brett Kavanaugh wanted an FBI investigation. He was absolutely convinced that it could help clear his name, but Don McGahn said No. Don McGahn said, we're not opening up this kind of can of worms. We're just going to go ahead. In fact, they didn't actually really initially until Republican members on the Judiciary Committee balked. They would have preferred not to have a hearing open or closed. They just wanted to interview Christine Blasey Ford behind the scenes. When Jeff Flake, not taking George W. Bush's phone call, balked and in conjunction with Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins insisted on an FBI investigation, then the question became what will the scope of that FBI investigation be? And the answer was the scope of the FBI investigation will be determined by doing only what Flake, Collins, and Murkowski insist on being done, which is the bare minimum. And In slight credit to the FBI, but emphasis on slight, this is not a criminal investigation. It's a background investigation. They are doing it on behalf of a client. That client is the White House. And ordinarily, that client, the White House, gets to set the scope of the FBI investigation. So the FBI was, for better or worse, just following orders. But the reality is, is that that meant that the FBI did not pursue leads that any ordinary responsible, credible background investigation would pursue. And the main lead that the FBI did not pursue, and this is a joint fault of the White House, the FBI, and the Senate, was to interview a man named Max Steyer. Max Steyer is not a household word, but he's somebody who's actually very well-known in Washington and well-known to a number of the senators. He runs, of all things, a good government group that is very bipartisan, though he did, because Washington is a small world, work for uh, in the private law firm that represented the Clintons during impeachment and was on the other side of Brett Kavanaugh, who was working for Judge Starr at the time. But before that, when he was a freshman at Yale and Justice Kavanaugh was a freshman at Yale, Max Steyer recalls seeing Justice Kavanaugh propelled by two friends at a drunken party at Yale, exposing himself to a woman who, important to note, does not recall this episode or has told friends he doesn't recall the episode. And it's an episode that's very resonant to a story described first in the New Yorker magazine involving a woman named Debbie Ramirez who recalled Justice Kavanaugh in a similar incident at a different party that same year at Yale. Max Steyer really wanted to get his information to the FBI. He enlisted some private lawyers who had been former federal prosecutors who had good relations with the FBI, and the FBI Would not interview him. He went to um, Susan Collins, who says she doesn't remember this, but either directly or through an intermediary and was never able to reach Senator Collins, who, by the way, had worked with his good government group. He went to Senator Chris Coons from Delaware and said, I'm trying to get this information out. Can you help me? Senator Coons emailed. The director of the FBI. This is not just a United States senator writing a letter to the FBI director. Coons and Chris Ray, the FBI director, were classmates at Yale Law School together. This letter to Chris Ray is cc'd to Chuck Grassley and to Dianne Feinstein, and it says, "Please, please interview this man, Max Steyer. He has information that it would be very relevant to your investigation." Nothing happens. Finally, Chris Coons, desperate to try to get this information out. And as everybody recalls, this was unfolding in real time over the matter of um, hours and days. He reaches out to Jeff Flake, the senator from Arizona, and says, you need to talk to this guy, Max Dyer." And Flake says, I'm dealing with death threats against my family. I just can't cope with it in a Incredible twist of fate, but probably wouldn't have changed the outcome. Senator Coons reaches out to Senator Collins, sends his email to her saying, you need to talk to Max Steyer, who I think you know, sends it to the wrong email because Senator Collins' email has been Breached and open to public exposure. So she had to change it in the middle of the Kavanaugh hearings. She did not end up seeing this, amazingly enough, until I called her office and asked them about it about a year later. So this all adds up to a dereliction of duty. Yes, the FBI had a client and it was following the orders of its client, but it was also allowing its professionalism to be tarnished. Where was Senator Grassley? in uh, who had pursued every possible alleged doppelganger of Brett Kavanaugh who was to be found when um, this name Max Steyer came up. He was nowhere. What did Senator Feinstein do? And so the Senate abdicated its advice and consent responsibility. And I guess this should be no surprise, but the White House was not looking to find the truth here. It was looking for the 50 votes that it needed. And that was um, that was the end result. But it is not a good chapter in the history of, uh, unfortunately, good government.
0: Yeah, the looking for uh, 50 votes or what may be looking for the 35 votes uh, sounds familiar. I think everyone should buy this book and read it, but be prepared to go a little crazy if you're a Democrat partisan like me of how could this have happened? How could this have happened? Let me ask you one more question, then I'm going to give it back to Katie. Take us behind the scenes in the prep for Brett Kavanaugh, what was he trying to do in the hearing? What we know about Brett Kavanaugh is he's a hard worker. He's over prepared for whatever it is he's supposed to be doing. How did he prepare, and what was his goal?
2: And you're talking about the the hearing that we all remember, and yes, not the boring yes, yes, stuff yes. about executive yeah. power. Yeah, because yeah. I could talk about executive power, and yeah. everybody would just turn off. So. The preparation for that hearing was an incredible moment. I take you to Judge Kavanaugh's chambers in the courthouse in D.C., and he's already had an opening statement written, but this is a moment that is an existential threat to him. He sees his whole life crumbling before his eyes. He imagines that he, it's not just that he's not going to be confirmed, but his reputation is going to be forever ruined. So he kicks everybody out and says, I want to, Work on this myself. He brings in a um, trusted former law clerk who had been a Bush speechwriter, Chris Michelle, and together they write these words. The ferocity of his attack was this was not an off the cuff, ad lib thing. This was written down. His attack on the Clintons was not ad libbed, it was written down. He comes out of his chambers, his private lawyers who are liberals, Democrats, are there? And he looks at them and he says, I think you're not going to like some of this. And many people have talked about how this was aimed at uh, one person who was President Trump. But in fact, it wasn't necessarily only aimed at President Trump. Susan Collins had been concerned when she watched Justice Kavanaugh, then Judge Kavanaugh, on Fox News, that he hadn't been demonstrative enough and that he hadn't acted the way that you would act if you are you had been accused of this horrible behavior and falsely accused. And so he was reacting to her. He was channeling himself, though I have to say people had not seen that degree of volcanic anger from him before. And then just sort of one other final scene leading up to uh, that moment that is indelible, if you don't mind my using that word, that Christine Ford used, is... Christine Ford has testified Republican senators think that Kavanaugh is sunk. The president of the United States is trying to reach Don McGahn, who's holed up in the Senate with Justice Kavanaugh. This is a book that where presidents keep having a hard time getting their calls returned. Amazingly enough, Don McGahn, the White House counsel, is refusing to take phone calls from the president of the United States, Um, not just his boss, but the most powerful man in the world. Not just one phone call, but repeated ones to the point where his deputy, a woman named Annie Donaldson, reaches out to him. And says, the president's calling, you got to take his call. And McGahn, who is not taking the president's call because he's convinced that the president is getting ready to pull the nomination, tells Annie Donaldson, I don't talk to quitters. Um, and so Don McGahn didn't quit and Brett Kavanaugh is Justice Kavanaugh.
1: So there's so much in the book that we didn't get to. It is very detailed and well reported. So in the interest of time, can you talk about the vote? and the aftermath and kind of where we are now. So um, I want to
2: tell one quick story about the vote, which is, uh, of course, the critical moment for the vote is not the confirmation vote itself, which is kind of a fait accompli, but the vote on the day before on Friday on the cloture motion. And two best friends in the Senate are Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski. And I tell the story of how uh, Susan Collins comes in and takes her regular seat next to Senator Murkowski. She's already told her in a phone call that morning that she's going to plan to vote for Judge Kavanaugh to confirm him. And Senator Murkowski leans over and says to her that um, she's going to vote uh, against Judge Kavanaugh. Susan Collins's face breaks into a huge smile um, because she's misheard her. She And she says, oh, I'm so relieved. And Senator Murkowski says, no, 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 you didn't hear me correctly. I'm not going to vote for him. And so the the vote proceeds, it becomes clear at that point, um almost crystal clear, that Judge Kavanaugh has the vote. And then um one last story that will tell you about how tribal we've become after the confirmation vote. A bunch of Republican senators are clustered around their colleague, Susan Collins, who has really come through for them. And she says to them, Well, now they're gonna all really come after me. And Lindsey Graham, Senator Judge Kavanaugh's greatest defender and really important defender, says to her, don't you worry, we're going to get Sheldon Adelson to be your finance chairman. He's referring to the Republican Party's biggest donor, Sheldon Adelson, and um, talk about this very difficult race that Senator Collins is facing in part as a result of that fateful vote that she cast.
0: A lot of times when you when you talk to an author, they give away all their best stuff in the podcast. Let me assure potential <laughs> readers out there that there's way more in the book that we couldn't get to here. But that is absolutely a series of fascinating accounts on something that is as important as anything Donald Trump has done as president. So
2: Yes, and if I can say one more yeah. thing about it, the reason to read this book. Well, one reason to read this book is that it's a really fun read, I think, and you learn a lot um, that you didn't know about what was happening behind the scenes. But the more important reason to read it is that it's not history. It's present because we're living with Justice Kavanaugh. This is going to be an amazing term at the Supreme Court. We're going to hear about abortion rights. We're going to hear about gay rights. We're going to hear about maybe gun rights. We're going to hear about potentially executive power in relation to Uh, the litigation over impeachment-related things. The death penalty. The death penalty. Everything that you could imagine is ending up at the Supreme Court, and it will be in the hands of Justice Kavanaugh. Read the book. And as
0: as you said before, maybe if someone had the right email for Susan Collins, this might have turned, but, uh, you know, probably not. Um,
2: but her emails. Yes. You know what? She <laughs> she made clear in a conversation to me that by the time this email made it to her, it was the night before the cloture vote. She had was already furiously rewriting her speech in favor of Justice Kavanaugh. Um, it's
1: kind of tragic that the email didn't get to her, but honestly, it wouldn't have made a difference. Well, the book again is called Supreme Ambition Brett Kavanaugh and the Conservative Takeover. It's a fantastic read. Ruth Marcus, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for that great interview. I love telling those stories. Thanks, Ruth. All right, Joe. So, for what's on your mind this week, let's try and put all of these many impeachment pieces together in one place and have you kind of explain. What's going on? Because a lot happened last week. There was testimony. There was movement by the House Judiciary Committee. We've also got the House Intelligence Committee making moves. What's going on? Where Where are we right now?
0: Well, a lot of things happened. And I think most importantly, we've now come into a very sharp focus of what's going to happen between now and when members of the House go home for the Christmas break, which my guess will be two or three days before Christmas. So let's look at last week just for a minute. The week started with the House Intel Committee, majority report written by the Democrats, that had a 300-page damning report that said, effectively, the president had abused the power of his office by conditioning aid and asking for a favor from Ukraine. And it was a much wider conspiracy than we knew before they issued this report. So much wider that the newsy part of it was uh, new phone records that involved Devin Nunes, Rudy Giuliani, Lev Parnas, and someone that's depicted as minus one who we just assume is the president of the United States based on the fact that in the Roger Stone case, the minus one in phone records was also referred to as the president. So that established the basis for going forward with impeachment. The second important thing was a bunch of constitutional scholars testified, not about the facts, but about the law. And three of the four, called by the Democrats, said that this president has done more impeachable things than any president in history. And they focused on the abuse of power. They focused on bribery. They focused on an unprecedented, and I think this was their strongest point an unprecedented obstruction of Congress as far as no president has ever completely said you can't have any material. It has always been something that's been negotiated. And even the holding back of material has not been per se executive privilege. And that if they don't move now, the House, this is likely to happen again. And and that's basically the case for impeachment. Professor Jonathan Turley for the Republicans made the case that This could be impeachable, but the Democrats haven't made their case yet, despite all of the obstacles. My personal reflection on that is I sat glued to the television in 1998 as President Clinton's press secretary, as Jonathan Turley, testified before the same committee and made the exact opposite argument, that if you deemed – and these are his words – if you deemed something as wrong but not rising to the level of impeachment – you are expanding executive power well beyond where it should be. And he said, we'll pay for this in the future. In one sense, Professor Turley was the best witness or person involved for Republicans in making the case because he didn't come across as Jim Jordan, but it was very disingenuous as far as testimony. The single most important thing happened last Thursday when Nancy Pelosi came out and said, we're going for it and uh, took out any question that might have existed as far as whether the Democrats were gonna do this and how quickly they were going to do this. So all of that brought into focus the fact that this president's going to be impeached, and sometime early next year, we expect something to happen in the Senate. Now, this week, there'll be even more activities starting today, on Monday. Adam Schiff, the House Intel Committee, is expected to present their case to the House Judiciary Committee. For those who were watching in 1998, this will be the equivalent of Ken Starr coming in and saying, here is what I gathered over my however many five years of looking at President Clinton. Here is the case. Here is the evidence. It's up to you to decide. I'm not telling you you should impeach him, but here is the case as I see it. Because Justice wasn't interested in looking at this, the Intel Committee has had to be both the investigator and then also some arbiter of what the law is here. So they're going to present their investigative report to House Judiciary. And then I think behind closed doors, Adam Schiff, uh, Jerry Nadler, their counsels, several other people, and Nancy Pelosi will sit in a room and write the articles. It's very clear from watching last week that there'll be an article on bribery, there'll be an article on abuse of power, there'll be an article on obstruction of Congress. I think the only open question that I see is whether they will go back to the Mueller report and do an obstruction of justice article. And I think there's a pretty healthy debate in uh, the party now on whether they should. I personally think they should. I think they won't though. I think that those in the Democratic party who are arguing for let's keep this clean and thin are going to win the argument with the speaker uh, who will make the ultimate decision. But that is a lot to happen in what looks like 8, 9, 10 days. It, this is now moving at light speed.
1: I also wanted to ask, just because you can't make this stuff up, but while all this is going on, which involves obviously the president's call with the president of Ukraine and Rudy Giuliani's behavior, Rudy Giuliani was quite literally traveling to and in Ukraine interviewing with uh, Ukrainians and talking about the impeachment and and what's going on while the impeachment hearings are happening and possibly while he's also under criminal investigation. Do you have any thoughts on that?
0: No, not really. I mean, it's just, you know, of course I have some thoughts (laughs) on that, Katie. One of the interesting dynamics of the Constitutional uh, Scholars hearing was Professor Turley's argument that the Democrats should take more time. Let the courts rule. Why are we caught on such a short schedule? The response of the other three, Karl and Gerhardt, and uh, Rothman, was that there is a specific timing because the president's behavior is designed to impact the next election. And every Republican up there said, that's silly, that's silly, that's nonsense. And then we find out that while they're having this hearing, Rudy Giuliani, is not only gone to Vienna and to Ukraine, he's gone there and he has said on television at the direction of the president to dig up dirt on Joe Biden and Hunter Biden. This is exactly the point the Democrats were trying to make. So if you're a, a Republican member of Congress and you're on that committee, you, you have to be pulling your hair out at the, the keystone cops of Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani.
1: And Rudy Giuliani was not the only one that was traveling to Europe last week. The president was also visiting and became what appeared to be the subject of some conversation among our world leaders. I'm sure you saw that video, Joe.
0: Yeah, I not only saw the video uh, in its original form, I saw the video in the Joe Biden ad that was released uh, late last week. Very
1: quickly after.
0: Very quickly. There's a great tweet, and there's always a tweet for everything with Donald Trump from, I think, uh, 2014, where he says, we need to get rid of Obama so the rest of the world will stop laughing at us. No one was really laughing at Obama, but, you know, Donald Trump can say what he wants to say. Well, now the rest of the world is literally laughing at us. They're not only laughing at us, they're laughing at us on camera, and you can hear the words. We go through this every time he leaves the country, where he can't stay on the script. He makes more problems than he even tries to attempt to solve. And this was just a literal international Trump shit show, where everything he did went wrong to the point of him leaving early and canceling a press conference in a snit because he was angry that people were being mean to him. You would think someone who could dish it out like Trump can would be a little less sensitive, but it was, a, I think, a disaster for American foreign policy, a disaster for Trump. And ironically, I think the only thing that saved him was it didn't get as much coverage as it might have because the impeachment hearings were dominating.
1: So, Joe, after Nancy Pelosi's announcement last week, the House is moving expeditiously toward passing articles of impeachment, which means we now will be dealing with the logistics of what a Senate trial may look like. But you think we might have some other options?
0: Well, I don't know that anyone's taking other options seriously, but there's one that that I think they should take seriously which is right now the president is being rewarded for illegally stonewalling Congress. And he's being rewarded because they can't get the information they need. Because they can't get the information they need, there's no way to convince Republican senators in the Senate. And he's counting on getting all the Republicans to vote for him and then doing a victory tour saying he was exonerated. My point is, let's not give him the victory tour. I think what the Democrats in the House should do is take the vote on impeachment and then hold the articles of impeachment and not send them to the Senate until the courts have ruled, which I think they will rule, uh, compelling people with firsthand information, Mick Mulvaney, Mike Pompeo, Rick Perry, Rudy Giuliani, John Bolton, and Charles Kupperman, all of these people compelling their testimony, because I think the public has a right to hear this. And once we go to the Senate, you will never hear from these people again. The second point that I'd make on this is the White House is very confident that the Republicans in the Senate are going to proceed with rules that are very favorable to the White House. And I'm not so sure that's true. They need two-thirds of senators to remove him. It's a simple majority vote on what the rules of the trial are. If you look back to 1998, there was a lot of partisan bitterness. But what Tom Daschle and Trent Lott did was they went in a room and they worked this out. And they did not do it the way we wanted it at the White House. And and we, we let them know that. We let Senator Daschle know that we weren't happy. Republicans were even less happy. They did something that they thought was good for the Senate. And there is the possibility that the Mitt Romneys the Lisa Murkowskis, and a couple of other senators will say, no, we want to do this right. We want to do this in a way that's fair to everyone and not in a way that the White House will be happy with. So that's my crazy idea of holding it uh, probably won't take hold. So it gets sent over. The real fight will be before the trial happens uh, because the rules for how it will proceed will dictate what it will look like And ultimately, what the result will be.
1: All right, Joe, well, we'll see what happens after the vote as we head towards trial, whether anybody bails you out on that potential theory. But as always, we enjoy hearing your thoughts until next week.
0: Yeah, and I would tell everyone and remind you that if you're looking for a good Christmas gift for someone, Ruth Marcus's book, that will be a good one because it gives a behind the scenes look at something that we thought we understood when we were watching it, but we didn't see the half of it.
1: Couldn't agree more.
0: It's great reading, and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.